Hello, everyone. Welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. The SALT Talks are a digital interview series that we started during this work from home period uh, with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And what we're really trying to do during the SALT Talk series is replicate the experience that we provide at our SALT Conference uh, global series, which is to provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future, and also provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts uh, for our community. And we're very excited today to, to welcome Ed Roman to SALT Talks to give a, a presentation and have a conversation about sort of the state of venture capital investing in a post-COVID world. And I think it'll be a fascinating and very educational uh, talk for everybody participating today. Uh, Ed is the managing director of Hack VC, which is a Silicon Valley-based venture capital firm. Uh, his mission is to democratize access to top Silicon Valley startups for investors. He has a decade of venture capital experience and is a shareholder in four startups worth over $1 billion and 17 startups worth over $100 million. Ed is also a best-selling author, and he's been the chief executive officer of three companies with two exits. So he's a founder as well uh, prior to going into the venture capital world. A reminder, if you have any questions for Ed during today's talk, you can enter them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen on Zoom. Uh, and hosting uh, today's talk before Ed launches into a, a presentation about the future of, of venture capital investing in the post-COVID world is going to be Anthony Scaramucci. Anthony's the founder and managing partner of Skybridge, which is a global alternative investment firm. Anthony's also the chairman of SALT. And with that, I'll turn it over to Anthony to kick off the interview. John, thank you. Ed, it's great to be on with you. And congratulations on an amazing career. And uh, John and I are super excited to expose our delegates, if you will, to your presentation, because I think you are right at the intersection of where today's present meets our future. And it's such a great optimistic story as well, Ed. So I'm super excited about all that. Um, but before we get into that, I think it's important for everybody just to lay out a framework of you. Uh, tell us something about you that we couldn't find on your Wikipedia page. Sure. And by the way, it's great to meet all of you. And thanks, everyone, for attending today. Anthony, it's a privilege to be in your company and to have this conversation with you. I'm a big fan of Skybridge and all your work in the past. So thanks for the opportunity. We appreciate it. Thanks. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so maybe one thing that you might not read up on Wikipedia about me is that when I first started investing, which is probably about 10 years ago now, um, in the initial stages, uh, basically, I didn't have access to a lot of the best investments. And I started off in Austin, Texas as an entrepreneur. Uh, basically just advising startups, just trying to help them out because it's very natural as a CEO to start advising other companies. <clears throat> and when you start advising companies, they ask you to invest in them. So I became an angel investor, like a lot of other CEOs do. And like a lot of other CEOs, my very first few investments were losing investments. So I lost money as an investor when I first started out as an investor. And what I didn't realize at the time was that a lot of the best startups were being cherry-picked by some of the top Silicon Valley VCs. So that's kind of how I got my start as an investor. I went on a 10 year journey to help address that problem and to help other investors to solve that problem, basically. So that's kind of the genesis for how I started off on this. And, and it's an amazing story, but you, 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 you had a game that you developed called Ghostfire Games. That's uh, right. So you were in the gaming business and you were, you were you, in the software programming business for, for games. How did you make the transition from that into venture capital? So it's very organic. So, you know, so basically my mission originally when I was creating this video game company was to help overweight gamers around the world to lose weight playing video games. 
by tricking them into playing video games and having them exercise as a byproduct of playing that game. So you might remember the Nintendo Wii system that came out sure. you know, a decade or so ago. So that system has a motion sensing controllers. You can actually lose weight playing video games on those controllers. So my mission was if I can show these gamers a fun game to play, what if they could lose weight as a byproduct of playing that? So you know, we created that game, we created some great games that got great reviews. And I started off as an engineer, you know, I was a programmer and I learned business over time. So, you know, I was fortunate to have, you know, started three companies that have had a couple of exits and that kind of organically led to me becoming an investor over time. Startups just kind of asked me to help advise them. And then that kind of led to me uh, then becoming an investor in them. And then that's kind of what started my path to become a venture capitalist eventually. What do you like about startups? I mean, we, we know there's an exciting element to that and you're sifting for unicorns. We know there's a lot of failure in startups as well. And, I, and, and, and so what attracted you to startups and what's your competitive edge in identifying a winner? It's a great question. So, you know, what's attractive about startups is that the founders of these companies are essentially trying to change the world and are building products that create innovation in society. And we benefit from that. And by being around people like that, it actually up-levels who we are as human beings. Because think about the character traits of being an entrepreneur. You have to be driven, motivated, hardworking. You know, hopefully you're honest, right? Um, passionate about what you're doing. That's the kind of people that I want in my life. You know, I have a theory that if I can surround myself with people like that, that kind of up-levels who I am as a human being. Because I learned from that. You are a product of who you surround yourself with, the five closest people that you surround yourself with. So I have the privilege of you know, being on a monthly phone call with dozens of startups that we've invested in. And I learn from them, they learn from me. And if I can give back and help them to avoid some of the mistakes that I made when I was an entrepreneur, that's a win for me in my life. That means I could be helping a startup to avoid creating waste and, and maybe, you know, maybe shaving months off their progress timeline. And, you know, that could be substantial in terms of the impact that startup can make to society. Yeah, so I, I actually think that is a perfect segue, Ed, into your presentation. But before you go there, John, do you have any quick follow-up questions before we turn over to Ed's presentation? I have a question about the, ha the Hack Summit, which we've talked a little bit about, Ed, uh, prior to coming on the talk. It's a programming event that attracts tens of thousands of attendees, providing free technical education on blockchain and, and coding nonprofits and things of that nature. What is the future of programming? We, we hear a lot about you know, programming boot camps and, and the need to retrain our workforce how have you found success in sort of combining your philanthropic and business endeavors uh, in that field of coding and getting more people into coding? That's a great question. So actually, it's, it's, uh, it's something that we'll talk about in a little bit. But the quick preview here is that there's a shortage in America right now of one million software developers. And yet, you know, there's some substantial layoffs that have been happening in this country. And there's a lot of folks who are out of work. And yet there still is that shortage of software developers. And, and so this is kind of one of the problems we're trying to address here with our online educational event, basically. So we are essentially helping startups to find great programmers. And that essentially is what's allowing us to get allocations in these over-contested financing rounds. So we think the future of kind of where, where Silicon Valley is headed is in the software categories and information technology. Technology companies like Zoom that we're using today for this event. And that's basically what we're investing in is the next generation of companies like Zoom. And that's built by programmers. So we think that you know, technical founders are uh, really where you want to be from an early stage investment perspective. You look at companies like Dropbox, for example. Dropbox was started by Drew Houston, which is a solo founder who is an MIT engineer 
who built a company worth billions of dollars. And, and we think there's going to be many more companies like Dropbox in the future that uh, become large and valuable, that come out of all parts of the country and all parts of the world. Well, that's fascinating. Ed, we're going to turn it over to you to give us a, a presentation on sort of the, the present and the future of venture capital in this post-COVID environment. And we're, we're looking forward to the presentation. And then uh, following your presentation, we'll get to audience questions. We already have a few that have been emailed in, so we're looking forward to that portion as well. But we'll kick it over to you to share your screen uh, and give the presentation. Great. So here's a little bit about me and my bio. So, um, you know, so I've been investing now for about 10 years, um, learned the hard way, made a lot of mistakes when I was early in my career, have gotten better over time. And now I've been fortunate enough to be investors in four companies worth over a billion dollars and 17 of them worth over a hundred million dollars. Um, I've written a book on programming and that kind of gives me a technical kind of background to help evaluate some of these startups. And we also manage a syndicate of family offices that, uh, we help invest in startups. So we, we're helping families get access to some of the best startups in Silicon Valley. Um, and I studied in Cornell. That's kind of my background. Uh, I have a computer science degree from Cornell. So let's talk a little bit about how technology companies are faring in this post-COVID environment. We're gonna start with public markets. So I'm gonna show you some data about how public market companies are doing. And then we're gonna transition to private market companies. So as you, as you probably noticed, you know, we're having quite a bit of, of a run on the stock market recently. Um, the NASDAQ is at all-time highs. You know, there's been a little bit of bouncing in the last few days, but it still has recovered quite nicely from its COVID dip. And if you kind of look at the Dow Jones, the New York Stock Exchange, those indices haven't quite fared as well as the NASDAQ. And, and you know, one of the reasons behind this is because of software companies, because of IT software companies. So you kind of look at companies like Okta and Zoom and Amazon Web Services, which is cloud hosting, and Microsoft, which is also very cloud-based, and Apple. These are some of the companies that are kind of leading the charge in terms of the stock market recovery, which surprised a lot of investors. A lot of investors didn't think that we'd have a recovery this quickly, um, and it's being led by tech and software. So um, what's interesting here is that a lot of folks are wondering, is this sustainable? Like, can we actually continue to see the tech uh, companies uh, continue to thrive? And, you know, or is this another dot-com bubble burst like we saw 20 years ago, which I lived through? So, you know, so we pulled some data here from William Blair, and this is data as of 2017. And this data kind of shows which sectors were performing relative to other sectors back in 2017. And what's interesting here is that IT was actually the number one performing asset class against any asset class. That includes materials and gold and crude oil. Um, and this is all pre-COVID. So, um, so there is historical evidence here that even before COVID, that IT was an interesting category. And why is that? Like, why is IT software such an interesting investment category. I personally like it, and there's a reason why I like it. It's because, first of all, you're selling software. So software is one of those products where it's 100% margin, where you, there's no cost of goods sold. You don't need to actually build a product. Um, there's no product recalls. Um, it's not a one-time purchase. You're subscribing to a service, kind of like Netflix or Dropbox or Slack. You know, you're actually getting a recurring subscription, which means there's predictability to the business, which means Let's say your sales force is ineffective at selling software next year. You can still probably make around the same revenue next year that you earned this year because of the recurring nature of the software and the fact that the software is fairly sticky. So we actually like B2B software. We think B2B software, business to business software is the category that, uh, that has the, that most predictability. And the reason is because businesses are wasteful. They tend to spend a lot of money on, um, on things that are, um, you know, that come from large budgets that they have. And you compare that to consumers, consumers have much smaller budgets 
they tend to be a bit more flaky than businesses. So Zoom, for example, which we're using today would be a good example of a B2B software company. And, and that has thrived in the pandemic. So that's kind of how we look at public markets and why we think IT is interesting. Now let's transition to Silicon Valley and private markets and look at how things are changing here. So, so the first question we have to ask ourselves is, is Silicon Valley even an interesting category to be looking at from an investment perspective um, post pandemic? And, and what we did was we kind of looked at back in time and we, and we looked at what, what did it look like in the previous crisis? So we had a crisis back in 2008, 2009, the financial crisis. And if you look at all these companies here, Slack, Nutanix, SendGrid, Square, Yammer, PagerDuty, Stripe, Twilio, Cloudflare, and GitHub, what do they all have in common? The interesting thing that they all have in common is that they're all IT software companies and they're all unicorns. They're all worth over a billion dollars. And they were all started during the 2008 to 2009 financial crisis. So if investors were not investing during that time, they would have lost out on those opportunities. So we actually think a, a crisis is actually a pretty good time to start a company. And there's a few reasons for this. Um, one of the reasons is that it's easier for companies to hire great talent. So there's been a lot of layoffs recently in, in this country and a lot of folks are looking for work, which means it's easier to build a team and assemble a team um, during a crisis because talent is more available. You know, one of the biggest challenges that our startups have is finding qualified team members to help them build their companies. And uh, as soon as the crisis hit, that actually became the opposite. We had, our startups had many more job applications than they, they had had in the past um, because of the crisis. So that makes it easier. And there's also less competition when acquiring customers. So a lot of businesses are not doing advertising right now. You look at traditional businesses like gyms and spas and you know, hotels, you know, a lot of them are not really advertising much because of the pandemic. So you know, that opens up the opportunity for you to acquire customers more cheaply. You can even buy competitors more cheaply in case some of your competitors are struggling. So you know, when we talk to entrepreneurs and they're thinking about starting a company, we're generally encouraging them to, to take that risk and to do it now because we think that in, in the midst of chaos, there's always opportunity. There's always ways to make money and to build something that changes the world. But the caveat here is you have to be in the right sector. So you can't just start a company in any sector because a lot of these sectors are gonna be challenging. And this is kind of the quick snapshot of how we think the sectors compare between the challenging sectors and the sectors that are seeing a, a COVID tailwind, meaning the sectors that are actually benefiting from the pandemic. So. You know, on the left-hand side of the challenging segments here, and a lot of them are obvious, like transportation, hotels, sports, fitness facilities, spas, right? Those are the obvious ones. Those are businesses that are physically closed or people are not traveling, et cetera. Then there are some that are less obvious, like apparel and luxury goods. You know, you don't, you might not necessarily want to invest in buying that fancy watch or that, that diamond necklace if you're not really going out as much, right? There's not a lot of opportunity to show that off. Um, so that's a challenging segment right now. Online dating is also challenging because how do you get together with other people and go on a date in the pandemic? So some of these are less obvious than others. But then in the tailwind category, you've got companies that are doing online education, so teaching you to learn from home, uh, video conferencing and virtual event technologies, as well as some things that are a little bit less uh, obvious, like video games and virtual reality. People have more time on their hands right now and they can't really go out as much, so they have to entertain themselves from home. And so you know, those are the types of companies that we're seeing in Silicon Valley or that are now kind of what a lot of VCs are looking at as interesting categories to invest in. So, um, you know, some of the companies that are, that are doing really well right now in Silicon Valley are the next generations of companies that you see in publicly traded markets, but they're now being invested privately by these VCs. And we'll talk about those in just a second here. 
So here's some data that also kind of backs this up. So what you're seeing here in this chart is layoffs in Silicon Valley in spring of 2020. This is a layoffs chart. This is how many jobs are being lost among startups in Silicon Valley. And at the top of this chart, you'll see retail, travel, fitness, real estate. Those categories are having more layoffs. And then at the very bottom of this chart, you're seeing IT having the fewest layoffs. So this, again, supports what we talked about earlier about IT software being kind of like a COVID-resistant category that uh, a lot of VCs are excited about right now. And a lot of those companies are being highly contested by VCs because they're, they're in that category of digital transformation, which a lot of businesses are, are, are going through right now because of the pandemic. So let's go through a few examples of like, what are some of the trendy startups in Silicon Valley that are thriving post-pandemic? The first one is called standard.ai. And standard.ai is AI-powered autonomous checkout. So what this means is it is a service that retrofits a grocery store, like a Walmart, for example, or Kroger's, and gives them the ability to have consumers buy groceries by just walking into the store, picking a grocery off of the shelf, and then literally walking out of the store without ever interacting with a human being. So the idea here is that it's using cameras in the sky to detect what items you're actually picking off the shelf. There's, there's cameras that are built into the ceiling of these, of these businesses, and uh, they use artificial intelligence and computer vision to detect what items you're picking off the shelf. And then on your mobile application, on your phone, that's when you get charged for this. So the idea here, the vision for this company is, let's actually reduce the cost of food in this country. Because by having a store that runs more efficiently with fewer cashiers, you actually can drive the prices of food down for consumers and really help consumers get access to food at cheaper prices. So it's one of those businesses that, are, that is helping the consumer to get access to food more cheaply, but is also a fantastic business um, because you're helping the bottom lines of these grocery stores. You can even do things like detecting security. So what if someone pulls a knife out of their vest? What if someone tries to steal from the store? Well, you can actually detect that with the cameras in the sky. So there's a lot of potential for where this technology is going. This has been kind of a 50X multiple in just two years um, you know, as one of the hotter Silicon Valley startups right now. Um, here's another example. This is one that's directly benefiting from kind of uh, what's happened in the last few months uh, is Medina's Health. So Medina's Health is a marketplace for, uh, for hospitals to find much needed medical equipment. So let's say you're a hospital and, you know, you're, you're trying to get access to very important, you know, surgery equipment and medical supplies, things like that. Medina's Health helps you find that equipment. And then once the pandemic hit, all these hospitals became very desperate to find masks and ventilators and gloves because those were you know, in, very, in very high demand once the pandemic hit. And then Medina's Health serviced that demand. So they helped these hospitals locate those, those ventilators, those masks. And you can see their revenue has, has pretty much been on a tear since the pandemic hit as a result of that. So this is a, a great example of a company that's doing good for the world. They're helping people, they're helping hospitals to source ventilators and masks. And they're also a great investment. They're also a profitable company. So that's why we're pretty bullish on these guys. And you know, they grew 5X just during COVID in terms of their revenue. So it's been a pretty substantial run for them. Here's another example of a company that's doing well in, in Silicon Valley called Crowdcast. So Crowdcast is kind of like the next generation of Zoom. That's one way to think about it. It's, it's a technology that allows you to host virtual events. So Zoom is more for like these little very informal, you know, kind of sessions that we're doing here with just a few people chatting. Crowdcast takes that to the next level. They said, what if we wanted to have 
50,000 people together at a virtual event all at once. And let's make a next generation experience around that. So, you know, Crowdcast has done no marketing at all. And you can see here their run rate has grown, again, 3.7x in about three months, just uh, as, a, as a function of the pandemic, because a lot of folks are not able to attend conferences anymore. And uh, conference organizers are now reinventing their conferences as virtual conferences. So Crowdcast is kind of servicing that demand. Um, this is one last example I'll give you. So, you know, as, as many of you may know, uh, traditional education that's in-person education is challenging right now. A lot of colleges and trade schools are kind of closing their doors and they're turning students away. They're turning to online education. And this is also happening at the consumer level. So, um, you know, a lot of consumers who, who learned skills at traditional businesses can't do that anymore. So for example, learning to dance is something that um, a lot of folks cannot do anymore because you can't take dance lessons from an instructor because it's not safe, right? Because you have to get very close to that dance instructor. And so a lot of the dance studios are closed now. So this company, Steezy, is a Silicon Valley company that's disrupting that. And they have online dance lessons where you can learn to dance from home. And this is street dancing. This is dancing where you can do it by yourself. There is no partner in this. So it doesn't require that you get near anybody else. And again, this company is on a tear due to the pandemic. So they've grown 5X um, in, you know, in the last year or so, just, just as a function of COVID being a tailwind for their business. So you know, these are some examples of companies that are benefiting right now and that are in that, that attractive category. Now, the other thing to think about is that there's some Silicon Valley companies that are not doing so well right now that are in more some of the challenging sectors. And Airbnb and Limebike are two examples of that. So Airbnb, unfortunately, had to slash their valuation from 35 billion to 18 billion. So it's about a 50% reduction in their valuation. And Limebike, which is the e-scooter company, they had to re reduce their valuation from 2.4 billion to only 400 million. So that, that was an 80% reduction for Limebike when they pulled their scooters off the street. And, uh, and unfortunately, this is having an impact on Silicon Valley. The impact this is having is that late stage venture firms may have invested at too high valuations into these companies. And they're needing to pour more money into these companies to keep them alive during the pandemic, which means they have less capital available to make new investments. So what that means for the other VCs, for the rest of us, is that there's less competition. There's fewer VCs making new investments because a lot of capital is being allocated to save these quote unquote struggling uh, COVID companies, which means that if you are investing in new companies right now, if you are a VC that is writing checks, you're, you're able to negotiate pretty well on price. You're able to actually negotiate on valuation because there's fewer options that startups have to raise from. So we think that investing in a pandemic is actually pretty good timing from a venture perspective. And this is some data that supports this. So this data comes from my friend Tomas Tungus at Redpoint. And you can see here that the number of rounds of funding have been steadily decreasing. And this data is relevant as of July of 2020. So you can see here the number of seed rounds, Series A rounds, uh, Series B and Series C rounds have all dropped precipitously, um, especially in the last six months or so due to the pandemic. What's interesting here though is in this next chart, it shows you that the number of the sizes of those rounds have actually increased. So we're actually seeing bigger rounds, but we're seeing fewer of those rounds. And the reason why this is happening is that there are, um, there are a few companies that are doing really well right now, like the ones we saw earlier. And investors are dogpiling on those deals and they're putting more money into those companies because they're winning companies in the pandemic. And so that's why the round sizes are going up, even though the number of rounds are going down. So let's talk a little bit about social responsibility of venture capital. I think 
you know, this is what, I, what something I admire about SALT and about Anthony is that you guys have a very big focus on social responsibility and chari charity, and we do as well. So, so this is kind of an interesting fact here. So if you kind of look back in 1978, the most common job in America back in 1978, who would have guessed it's actually secretary is the most common job in America back in 1978. This is about 40 years ago now. Uh, number two being a farmer back in 1978. And what's interesting here is if you fast forward about 40 years, this is what it looked like in 2014. So this is about six years old, but still relevant. And look what happened. Secretary is, is barely on the map anymore. And now truck driver is the number one most common job in America. It's truck driver, actually. And the thing that I worry about is that these truck drivers may in the future have their jobs threatened by VCs in Silicon Valley because of self-driving trucks. You know, autonomous trucks could be threatening to this workforce down the road. And, uh, and what are we going to do about that? You know, like we, I think we have a social responsibility to think about this. It's not just about making money. It's also about addressing the societal change that, that's being caused here. So, you know, right now, unfortunately, this is according to CNBC that 47.2% of Americans are currently in, out of work because of COVID-19. And many of those jobs are not coming back right now. And this is because jobs, uh, the companies are filing for bankruptcy. We've had a lot of local businesses in San Francisco shutter their doors permanently because of the pandemic. And yet, and this addresses your question earlier, John, is that there's a shortage of 1 million programmers in this country right now. And unfortunately, most Americans are not skilled to fill those roles. So a lot of the people who are losing their jobs cannot fill those roles. So the small way that we're trying to address this is we aim to educate the world on the craft of software development to reskill a lot of these workers. That way they can take some of these jobs. And we do this through our basically a global virtual event that educates folks on the craft of software development. And then what we do is we then place those programmers at our startups. So we have a, a service called hackjobs.org you can check out, which connects startups with programmers. And you know that also benefits us as a venture firm because we're able to credibly tell the startups that we have access to these programmers and that solves their biggest problem. And that earns us allocations in their rounds. That's one of the ways that we're able to fight our way into some of the better deals in Silicon Valley. So it's, it's a good example of how you can kind of marry social responsibility with economic upside and have the two together. Why do you have to pick, why do you have to pick one or the other? Can't you build a business that has both economic upside but also social responsibility? And so, you know, we're big fans of that model. In fact, at our, at our events, we make no money on the events. All the proceeds go to charity. We raise money for organizations like Code for America, Women Who Code, Girls Who Code, those are the, the folks who benefit from our events. We're not lining our pockets with them. So that's kind of how we think about the world. So the last section here before we go back to our fireside chat is, you know, what are some, what are some tips and advice for how do you earn returns in early stage venture capital while reducing risk? So let's just get real here and talk about the positives and the trade-offs with venture capital. So one of the positives of venture capital is that it's a very, it's a very patient way to earn strong returns. So if you're patient about it, if you can wait 10 years or so, then you know, the, the rewards can be substantial, but it's a long-term buy and hold strategy. This is not the type of asset where you know, you'll get immediate liquidity. It's for people who are, are able to be patient and earn those returns and are accessing equities that are unavailable to most investors. So a lot of these Silicon Valley deals are behind closed doors. You have to know the right people in Silicon Valley. You have to be a Silicon Valley insider to get access to them. And if you can get into them, it's, it's usually um, quite lucrative. And, and the reason for this is because you're accessing an asset class that most people don't have access to. So on, on public markets, everyone has access to that, those equities. And you know, for me, I, I, I like to play the game of 
accessing equities that other people don't have access to. So that's, that's where I think uh, it gets interesting with venture capital. And there are potential for outsized returns in venture capital. So, you know, this is again, a very rare situation, but with Uber, if you were able to invest in Uber's very first fundraising round, you would have made 3,100 X your money on that, on that investment. That you'd have turned $10,000 into $31 million had you invested in, in Uber's very first round. Now, again, that's very rare. You have to be very lucky to get into an Uber, but it is possible. Um, and it also offers diversification against other asset classes. So, you know, if you're building a portfolio of real estate and, you know, public stocks, you know, this is a way to kind of hedge against those a little bit. And they're also helping to change the world. You're helping entrepreneurs to do good things. So that's the, those are some of the positive venture capital, but then there's some challenges. One of the challenges is that it's very volatile and it can be risky. So if you're, you know, if you're investing in venture capital, there's, um, you know, there is a high variance to the asset class and it's less predictable than other asset classes. And you kind of need to be in the right funds, you know, and a lot of the right funds are oversubscribed, unfortunately. So you look at funds like Sequoia Capital and Floodgate and Jason Horowitz, a lot of these, these funds are not accepting additional capital right now because there's so much demand to invest in those funds. So those are some of the challenges. So the way that we kind of think about this is let's look at, at how these different venture funds compare. So on average, a smaller venture fund will outperform a larger venture fund. So this data comes from Prequin. And you can see here that as a fund size of around 100 million, that's where you're getting the best returns as an investor. On average, of course, you know, there's always exceptions here. But then as the fund size gets larger, the returns on average start to drop. And the reason for this is because the investors have to invest bigger and bigger checks at later and later stages. And that helps to, that, that can hurt the returns a little bit for the fund. Um, here's another interesting graph for you. So it turns out that most of the unicorns are only held by only 36% of the VCs. So, so basically just about a third of the VCs hold most of the unicorns. So again, illustrating why you need to kind of be in the right funds. It's one of those asset classes where if you can get into the right funds and, and you, know, you, you have that access, then you can do very well for yourself. But if you can't, then you probably shouldn't be playing the game at all because it's a very easy way to lose a lot of money if you're not careful about it. And this is some data that shows that. So this data shows different venture funds based on top quartile versus bottom quartile. So on average over the last decade or so, the best venture funds, the top quartile have performed at a 19.45% return, whereas the bottom quartile funds have only had a 4% return. So this is not true in other asset classes, right? So if you look at real estate and other asset classes, you don't see this huge disparity between the, the, the top quartile and the bottom quartile. And we're not even talking top decile or bottom decile here. We're just, we're just talking quartiles here. So again, illustrating why you need to be in the right funds. So that, so you know, in summary, these are some of the challenges. Venture capital is volatile. Uh, any VC could underperform in any given year. And uh, you can invest in a large number of VCs and that can help reduce the volatility. But then picking a VC firm is tricky. You have to be able to diligence them. The top VC partners can change firms all the time and funds have gone larger that hurts returns. And access is hard. The best venture firms can be oversubscribed. So, you know, in summary, what I'll just tell you is what we're doing to help address this problem, because this is something that I'm passionate about, is how do we solve this problem? Uh, and so what I've been on a mission for, for the last decade or so is essentially to transform the asset class of venture capital into basically what is a better asset class. So what we're basically doing is creating a new asset class out of venture capital through a diversified Silicon Valley fund. And what we basically do is we write small checks into startups, and then we build ownership over time over multiple checks, and that reduces some of the risk. Um, 
And through this diversified fund, it's not as concentrated, so it's more predictable. So we're basically turning venture capital into a more predictable asset class through a larger portfolio. And our goal is to basically aim at access the top 10% or so of these early stage startups. And we invest alongside some of the top VCs at early stages before they get access to them and they market up at higher valuations. So we're trying to get in early at these low stages and we're investing in COVID-19 tailwind companies like the next Zoom, et cetera. You know, we're focused on IT software. So we've been doing this now for about a decade now and we have you know, uh, four companies worth over a billion dollars and 17 of them worth over a hundred million. So that's, that's kind of what we're up to. And there's other solutions to this as well. So if you're a family office out there and you're looking to invest directly into startups, you can also apply some of these principles to your direct investment strategy. So, you know, for example, if you were to be investing in companies yourselves, I would encourage you to maybe write small checks into these, these companies to seek diversification, maybe have a portfolio of 30 or 40 companies. Don't bet it all on just one company. And that should help you to shield from isolation. So you can kind of emulate a little bit of what we're doing on your own as well. So that's it. You know, if you have any questions, you can email me. My email address here is ed at hack-bc.com. And uh, I'd love to take audience questions and continue the fireside chat. So thanks for, for listening to me today. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Ed. That was a great presentation. I have some questions and I know we have some, some audience questions that have both been emailed in and then we have some that have been posted in the Q&A box. Reminder, anyone watching, if you want to ask Ed a question, you can enter it in the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen on the Zoom window and we will answer it as long as it's appropriate and relevant. But I have a question to start things off. So I think it was, it was a very interesting slide you had up. You had Airbnb and Limebike talking about how you've had some short-term disruptions uh, in companies that have really compelling long-term stories. And I saw some data a couple of days ago about Airbnb is having a massive resurgence in its revenue and bookings, whereas hotel chains like Marriott are still suffering in the COVID environment. What you're seeing is a phenomenon where people are looking to get out of some major metropolitan areas and rent potentially rural cabins or other properties. How do you go about identifying what is the baby and what is the bathwater? And are there other examples that you have uh, of you know, companies that are suffering in the short term, but it just provides a great entry long term? Is that a quantitative process or a qualitative process that you go through? And, and what are some other examples that you're seeing uh, about you know, separating long term uh, opportunity from short term pain? That's a great question, John. So, yeah, I mean, in general, we, we have seen there's a trend right now towards uh, essentially migrating away from the cities. So in, in Silicon Valley, in San Francisco right now, the rents here have dropped by about 10% because a lot of workers have realized we can, we can work remotely. We don't necessarily have to go to an office anymore. Even you, John, were telling me before our, our talk today that, you know, it's about an hour and 15 minute commute each way for you in New York City to get to and from work. And that that may not make a lot of sense for a lot of workers. So what a lot of employers like Facebook and Google and other companies like that are doing, and Twitter, for example, is they're actually allowing permanently their workers to work remotely where they don't actually have to be in the city anymore. And that's, that's opening up the opportunity for workers to do what I call maximizing the virtual office, which means you know, if, if you work at a company like that, you could theoretically work anywhere in the world. Now, some places are more realistic than others. Like if you work somewhere, you know, in in some island in the Atlantic Ocean, you might have a time zone issue, right? Collaborating with your employer, because you know, maybe there's, there's very different time zones between the two of you. So I think you know, staying within the same hemisphere makes a lot of sense. Now, I do believe that that is gonna be a somewhat temporary phenomenon. So what we're predicting will happen is that once the pandemic starts to wane, 
And once the vaccines are ready and once they're distributed and manufactured, which by the way, will take a while to do all that, right? It's not gonna be a V-shaped recovery, but once that all happens, then there's gonna be a, a kind of a resurgence of cities again, where people start to return to cities, but it's not gonna be 100%. So what's, what's happening here is that people are finally opening up their eyes to the idea of a virtual office and how that could be beneficial to workers. In fact, for all three companies that I've run, as CEO for the last 20 years, all three of them have been virtual offices. So I've learned a lot about how to run a virtual office myself and learned a lot of lessons about how to do it the wrong way and how to do it the right way. And a lot of companies are going to have to learn those lessons over the next uh, few years. So I think it's going to be a hybrid. You're going to have you know, some companies that allow virtual offices and some that don't, and some will, will be open to a mix of both. And, uh, and so we do believe that the cities will still have a permanent uh, function and that companies will be returning here. So that's a great question, John. Yeah, I mean, from a SkyBridge, just to editorialize on my end briefly, you know, from a SkyBridge standpoint, I went into the city yesterday for the first time. I live on Long Island. Like you said, it's about an hour and 15 each way for me. So two and a half hours of commuting every day. I went into the city yesterday. Uh, it was nice to be back in the office. But by the end of the day, I said, given the time that I spent commuting, I was on calls and things while I was commuting. I said, you know, th this isn't necessarily the best use of my time. It's definitely valuable to be there at least a couple days a week. But I, I envision myself working remotely and maximizing my time in a remote environment. And also from an event perspective, you talked about Crowdcast. We actually have an audience question about this that we can segue into, but from an event perspective, we always had our SALT conference was virtually 100% an in-person event. People gathered in Las Vegas, about 2000 people every year, fantastic networking uh, in a very insulated environment. We view those, those events going forward as being hybrid, even in a post COVID, you know, two, three, four, five years down the line of having an, uh, a digital element built into the in-person gathering. So, you know, Crowdcast, we have an audience question about Crowdcast and Steezy. Do you see those businesses continuing to grow after the, the COVID environment that we're in? Or do you think growth might slow? Or what's your forecast for those types of companies after we get clear of this pandemic? That's a great question. So, so yeah, we do believe that these companies that are doing really well based on the pandemic, um, they're not going to see the organic growth levels that they are seeing today just because of the pandemic, right? So Crowdcast has done no marketing, right? They have grown 5x just because of the pandemic, right? Off no marketing. Now, we don't think they're going to get all that free, you know, that free growth without investing in marketing going forward. So, so we think that in the future, they're going to need to invest more to cause their own growth on their own without the pandemic. Um, but we do believe that there is going to be a permanent need and, and value for having virtual events for the reasons that you and I talked about, which is that a lot of folks are now open-minded to the idea of a virtual event. You know, the idea of a virtual conference a year ago would have been unthinkable for a lot of conference organizers. You know, a lot of folks are like, well, virtual events, do, do those even work? And do I even get value out of that? And now, since it's the only way we can do business, now folks are kind of open-minded to it. And they're saying, oh, wow, I actually can get value out of a virtual event. So we've been doing these now for six years. You know, we run the, the largest programmer event in history, which is virtual. And we've been believers in this for a while. So we, we've been hopeful that, that folks would embrace virtual events now for six years. And now they finally are out of necessity. So we think it's going to be a component, but not, not the only answer going forward. We think it's going to be a mix of both. And so for companies like Crowdcast and Steezy that are having this huge tailwind, we think that the tailwind will eventually subside and they're going to have to cause their own growth. But this does a lot of benefit for them anyway. It de-risks their next fundraising round. Their traction goes up quite a bit. They're less dependent on investors. They need to rest, raise less capital from VCs because they can get profitable very quickly. And by the way, both those companies are profitable, which is very rare, right? You look at all these publicly traded companies, 
you know, they are, uh, you know, how many IPOs do we see these days for profitable companies, right? There aren't that many of them, right? There's other Palantir hand is a great example of that. They lose yeah. what, over $500 million a year? That's right. So there's, there is a handful, but most of them are not. And Silicon Valley has this reputation of churning out these publicly traded companies that are unprofitable. And here we have companies that haven't even raised their Series A yet that are profitable coming out of Silicon Valley. So this is a new generation of companies that we think are self-sustainable and the pandemic has been helping them in that regard. So the next question, uh, Steve Case is somebody who was at our SALT conference in 2019 in Las Vegas. Uh, he did a SALT talk a few months ago. He's a big proponent of this concept of the rise of the rest, which is that there's going to be, even pre-COVID, he was preaching this, that there's going to be a wave of entrepreneurship and capital that flows to second tier cities in the U.S., basically non-Silicon Valley and to a certain extent non-New York. So he's helping to invest in a lot of those companies. He has a bus tour that goes around and, and does a startup competition, pitch competition. When you look geographically at startups, do you have a bias towards different places? We have a, an audience member who's asking whether you look at startups in, for example, the Atlanta or Southeast Georgia area. And how, uh, you know, you talk about the Hack Summit that you do that helps companies identify and hire uh, coding talent and you have the Hack Jobs uh, platform as well. How do you think about companies geographically? And do you agree with Case's narrative that there's going to be a wave of entrepreneurship outside of these hubs like San Francisco? And that's a great question, John. And thanks for asking that, David. So, yeah, so over the last five years or so, I have been trying to help startups fundraise from other VCs, in addition to ourselves, who we believe have merit that are not based in the U.S. and not based in Silicon Valley. And... Uh, as you get further and further away from Silicon Valley, it can get more challenging. So to be realistic, the reason why this is challenging is because most of the VCs are in Silicon Valley and they prefer to not have to travel for their board meetings because they have families and they're trying to manage their time and they don't wanna be on flights their entire lives. They'd rather kind of just have a, a good family life. So that bias causes other VCs to, to essentially deprioritize startups that are not based in Silicon Valley. Now that, that rhetoric has been changing over the last five years or so. So what, I've, what I'm seeing now is that because of additional competition in the VC industry, because there's a lot more VC firms now than there used to be, the VCs are having to get more creative around how do I actually win the best deals? And a lot of the best deals are not in Silicon Valley right now. So you look at Salt Lake City, Utah, for example, um, there was the largest SaaS exit in history in Salt Lake City, Utah, which was, um, which was $8 billion that came out of there. Um, where, where, where SAP made an acquisition out of that area. Um, and then, um, you know, Pluralsight, which I was a board observer on, also based in Salt Lake City, that IPO'd for $4.5 billion. So, you know, Salt Lake City is, is, a, is an up-and-coming center now, and most VCs have some sort of strategy or presence now in Salt Lake City. New York City is another good example of that. Los Angeles is another good example of that. So there are certain hubs that are now popular from a VC perspective. And it's easier to raise the next round of funding if you invest in a company that's in those sectors because other VCs want to invest in those geographies. So it's almost like by having empathy and by investing in the geographies that other VCs want to invest in, you're actually de-risking the next round of funding for the startup. And that helps de-risk the investment. So now with the pandemic though, a lot of that is changing. So VCs are now taking their meetings over Zoom and they're a lot more open to where the startups are located. So we think there's gonna be a lot more optionality in terms of where your company is based. And now we're seeing fully virtual distributed teams raising their rounds of funding. So it's gonna be interesting to see what happens. 
You talked in the opening with Anthony about early in your career, you were frustrated by a lack of access. Uh, you felt like you were missing out on a lot of great investment opportunities because you couldn't get access to those ton of competition in Silicon Valley, especially when you talk about those big firms that you mentioned earlier that, that get access to all the top deals and sort of crowd out uh, potentially some other investors. How are you able to get into the top startups given all the competition in the market? And we have a question from an audience member, Chris, what are other ways to solve that access problem other than getting invested at the very early seed stage? That's a great question. So, so basically um, here's our strategy. So what we do is we partner with other venture firms. So we partner with firms like Sequoia, like Bain Capital Ventures, like Floodgate, you know, these oversubscribed funds, we have alliances with them. And our business model is that we invest very small checks into those companies at very early stages. And by investing a small check, it doesn't threaten these other VCs business models. They're happy to allow us to join for a small check because you know, their whole goal is to write a very large check into these companies and we're, we're enabling them to do that. So what we do is we help them find the best deals. We are literally giving away all of our best deals to our friends who are other VC firms to allow them to lead these rounds. And we're co-investing for small checks. And the reason why we're doing this is because we are transforming the asset class of venture capital into a more predictable asset class through diversification. So by having a larger portfolio of these small checks, that's what creates consistency in the returns. That's what allows us to take the volatility out of venture capital. So we actually don't desire to write these giant checks. We're happy to write a modest check. And then if the company is performing well, then we reinvest in future rounds. We build this position over several checks. So it's almost like we're dollar cost averaging our way into this investment. And by, doing, by taking this position, it, it allows other venture firms to essentially be open kimono with us about getting us access to some of their best deals. So we're able to invest in companies that the general public generally can't access because those, those other venture funds are oversubscribed and we're able to access them for that reason. And then the last part of this is that the CEOs themselves are demanding that we invest in their companies because we have access to all these engineers because we run this large programmer conference. You, know, you have to have empathy for the CEO also. They're the ultimate decision maker about whether you get into these companies. And by solving their biggest problem of hiring engineers, they generally, uh, they're generally kind of pitching us to, you know, to, to take their money, no matter how many term sheets they have, no matter how, much, how hot the deal is, we're almost always able to get a small allocation for ourselves because that value add is so, is, is, is so important for these CEOs. We have another audience question. You mentioned the idea of investing in startups uh, outside of Silicon Valley and also even outside the United States. And we have a specific question about India. And India, I know, is a, it's a hot place for uh, you know, technology entrepreneurship right now. There's several companies. Google just invested a significant amount of money in the geo platforms based in India. But do you have a specific view on startups that operate in India? And are there any other international markets that are of, of keen interest to you? So we do invest in India as well as South America. LATAM is a big focus for us as well. Um, we think that there's opportunities to essentially clone Silicon Valley companies in those geographies. You know, one of the biggest risks you take as an investor is how do you um, de-risk what's called product market fit, meaning how do you prove or disprove the hypothesis around your business model? And that's one of the biggest risks that an investor takes. So if you have a business model that you know works, right, where you know it's a good business model and it's been proven in the US, and if you clone that business model in another geography, then you're taking away that product market fit risk, right? You're, you know the business model will work. It's just a question of execution at that point. Is this a good team? Can they execute? And you can diligence that as part of the investment process by doing reference checks on the founders and by looking at their past work. 
you know, people who tend to do well in life tend to repeat that success and do well multiple times. You know, so we, we tend to look for, you know, what is the history of success that these folks have? Are they winners in life in general, right? And that, that, that predicts whether they will be successful with these companies. So, you know, so that is one thing that, uh, that can make it more straightforward to invest in international markets. And we believe the valuations are also more attractive there because if you look at the publicly traded markets in, in places like Latin America or other parts of the world, the public markets are not as healthy as the U.S., right? So the U.S. publicly traded markets are very healthy compared to like Latin America, for example. And the, the valuation multiples that you see in Latin America are much lower than the U.S., for the same company. You know, if you were to IPO a company in the US versus LATAM, you're gonna see a much lower multiple on revenue on that publicly traded company in LATAM uh, because the markets aren't as hot there as here. So what that means, you gotta be careful from a valuation perspective. You have to come in at a low valuation and give a little bit of a discount to the valuation because they're in Latin America. And as long as you bake that into your math, it can be very lucrative. We have another audience question, and this is actually one of my questions as well. So at Skybridge, we deal with a lot of families. Family offices are, are pretty much our largest constituency of clients. And a lot of times when we bring, whether it's hedge funds or venture capital funds to uh, these families, some of them have a preference to invest deal by deal as opposed to in funds. What are the advantages of dis and disadvantages of investing in a venture capital fund versus trying to invest in deal by deal and what are some common mistakes you see investors make when they're trying to invest themselves uh, deal by deal in terms of due diligence and, and um, company selection? That's a great question. So, so in, let me answer the second part of your question first. So, if, so we actually have a PDF file that we made that gives a bunch of tips for how to avoid making mistakes when you're doing your own investments deal by deal. And I'm happy to email that to anyone in the audience that wants to hear about this. Um, I'll just type out my email address here. It's ed at hack-pc.com. If you send me an email, I will send you this PDF file. It's called Angel Investing Tips, and it contains just a, like a plethora of best practices that I've learned, the mistakes I've made as an investor over the years, kind of crystallized into a PDF document for you to review. So, um, so the, then the other part of your question was, how do you judge the difference between deal-by-deal deal versus funds, and how do I know which is best, and what are the trade-offs between the two of them? Um, so we offer both at our venture firm. So we do both deal by deal and, and fund investments through our, our venture fund, you know, to our LPs. And we do find that, that investors like to choose their own deal. There's something sexy about being able to pick a company and to have some intuition about whether that company is, is you know, is going to succeed because everyone comes from different walks of life. Everyone has different life experiences and you, you personally may have some intuition about a company that other investors don't have. So why can't you pick your own deals? And so there is a trend right now towards doing that where families are getting more and more comfortable picking their own deals. The caution that I'll give you is that most family offices suffer from what's called adverse selection. Adverse selection means the deals they're seeing are kind of the ones that have already been picked over by the top VCs. And this is the problem that, that we're actually trying to solve at our venture firm because, you know, this is the problem that I experienced because I have my own family office. You know, I had an exit, you know, 20 years ago and I started a family office and, Lo and behold, I got access to a bunch of deals that other VCs didn't want. And, and that was problematic for me. And that's why I went on this journey to help solve for that. So, you know, so the way you can avoid that, one way you can avoid that is, is to partner up with a VC firm. And there's many of them, we're one of them, but there's plenty of others too that you can partner with, where maybe they can be a second set of eyes for you to help you vet a deal. That way you have a professional that's looking at the deal with you to maybe assist you a little bit on due diligence. 
and to maybe help you out with deal flow. Now, the one caution I'll give you is that, and this is something that VCs are pretty famous for, and a lot of families don't realize this, is that sometimes what, what a VC will do is they'll invest in a company, and then if the company underperforms, they'll then offer that deal to their family offices to essentially give the company more runaway, to help, to help them you know, have more, more uh, dry powder to turn it into a good company. And guess what? Those are some of the bottom performing companies in their portfolio. The best ones are able to raise on their own. They don't even need family offices to raise from them. So that's my, I would look at your own deal flow from a perspective of what is called a jaded eye, meaning I would be cautious about your own deal flow. Make sure that you have good counsel, a good venture firm you can work with to be a neutral second set of eyes on this deal. And that can help you avoid some of the losses. Um, investing in funds give you, gives you what's called fund level protection, meaning if you invest in a fund, you're investing in a basket of companies and the winners and the losers offset each other. So the fund manager doesn't make any, any uh, profits, any carried interest, unless the whole fund performs. So that means that there's accountability for performance. You don't, you don't enjoy that if you invest deal by deal. So if you're doing your own deals, the winners and losers don't offset each other from a profits perspective. You know, if someone's sourcing a deal and they're, they're taking a profits interest on that, you know, they're, they're getting a deal by deal profits interest, which is a very good deal for them. So that's why I would be a little bit cautious. It is sexy to invest in your own deals and we think it's a good thing, but you just got to be very careful about it. And, you know, email me, I'll give you my angel investing tips to help you navigate that. Fantastic. I think, you know, you might, uh, get the sexier returns, as you mentioned sometime, and maybe it has an element of excitement to it trying to pick over deals, but you might settle for a slightly lower return, but uh, with significantly less risk in a, a fund structure. Uh, we have another question from Chris uh, talking about SPAC. So we had Chamath Palihapitiya from Social Capital on. He's become sort of the face of this uh, surge in SPACs, special purpose acquisition companies that provide basically a backdoor for companies to go public versus a traditional IPO. Do you think SPACs will become a more widely used tool? And what is your general opinion of SPACs? Is it a, a byproduct of sort of the overheating potentially of, of the private capital world? Or what's your general opinion of SPACs? And do you think they'll continue to be a, a popular substitute for traditional IPOs? That's a great question. So I, I will caution the audience that I'm not an expert in SPACs. You know, I'm more of an expert on venture capital, but I will do my best to answer. So my understanding is that there's about 110 SPACs right now that are competing to essentially acquire a company and effectively IPO them. And the value of that SPAC is that you're not just getting access to IPO and giving, you, giving yourself liquidity, but you're also saving on the fees that the brokerages will charge you. Um, and th that's a lot of savings right there. That, that buffer that you're saving from not having to go through a Wall Street broker that's money that you, you're leaving on the table as an investor if you go through a traditional IPO. Um, and the other value of a SPAC is that you're actually able to do a primary uh, fundraise for your company as part of the liquidity, which is also attractive because IPO and company is basically a fundraising event, right? You're raising money for your company. So SPACs have that value. So those are some of the benefits of SPACs, but then there's, there's also some trade-offs and some downsides as well. Um, so we think that there's going to be a mix. You know, we think that the future is going to be a mix of both SPACs and IPOs. I, I think one thing that hasn't been discussed too much is that there is kind of like this emotional benefit that an entrepreneur gets from like ringing, ringing the bell on Wall Street, right? Like there's, there's just something that's very proud about actually going through an IPO that people just want to experience in their lives, right? So I think that the demand from IPOs isn't going to go away because of even just because of the ego factor of doing that process, right? Of saying, I IPO'd a company, right? A lot of entrepreneurs just want to say that. Uh, regardless of, of the process. And a lot of people just aren't up to speed on SPACs. They're not as familiar with it. 
and they may not be comfortable doing a SPAC because it's a newer instrument and the IPO is the more traditional instrument. So we think it's going to be a mix going forward and we think there's room for both of them. I think we could talk for two more hours easily given all the audience questions and questions that I have for you, but we'll wrap it up just with one more quick follow-up on that. And it's sort of a meta question about public markets versus private markets. So obviously you see public tech companies are performing very well. Prior to that, you know, private technology companies uh, were extremely hot. Private equity and venture capital were very much the hot dot. And you're talking about you know, different ways to go public. Is there really a strong need for a lot of these private companies to go public or are private markets developing uh, with such maturity that you're going to just continue to see some large companies remain private for long periods of time and potentially never go public? And that's a great question. Yeah. So what we're seeing, the trend that we're seeing is companies are taking longer and longer to go public. And a lot of folks are realizing like, why would I even want to go public? Like what is the benefit of going public? And, and the biggest, the, the most common answer is, it, it's kind of a way to reward the employees who are breaking their backs building your company, right? Because you're offering them liquidity. You're offering them the opportunity to sell their shares to other parties. And there are other ways you can achieve that. You can do a secondary offering on private markets. You can have some of the employees cash out that way. But, you know, that's harder to orchestrate for a large number of employees, right? So an IPO is a more elegant way to do that. Um, there's a lot of trade-offs. So there's a lot of negativity to going public. Like, for example, you may have activist shareholders that try to take over your company. And you may have lawsuits that happen from class action lawsuits because let's say, you know, Elon Musk puts out a tweet that says that uh, there's a good chance he'll, he'll get some financing and doesn't happen, right? That happened in the last year or so. And, you know, there's a bunch of class action lawsuits that result from things like that, um, which you have to deal with. So it's all this nonsense you have to deal with as a company because you're under public scrutiny. So it takes about a year or so to just prepare to go public in terms of getting your books in order and all that stuff. You know, I've been through this process before. Um, you know, when I was a board observer at Plural site, and you know, it's non-trivial to go through that process. So a lot of folks just want to avoid that pain and the potential fear of the public scrutiny. So they'll remain private for a while, but then there's this pressure from the employees to kind of cash out. And the VCs also want to cash out. The VCs want to, you know, kind of a venture fund is only intended to last for 10 to 12 years. Right. So once that timer expires, you know, at that point, you know, you're kind of obligated to produce a return for your investors. You can do that through a secondary sale. You don't need to go IPO, but an IPO is a nice way to do that as well. So, you know, so there's some of the trade-offs. So we think that people are wising up to the fact that you can now have what's called a second class of shares. Like Mark Zuckerberg has this for Facebook where, you know, he can't be removed as CEO because his voting shares have more votes than other shares, right? So, you know, things like that, if you're a really, really hot company, you can do that. Only the best companies can do that, right? that can elude some of the fears around going public for some of these companies. So, you know, it's going to be a mix and every entrepreneur is going to make their own decision. Um, and we think it's going to be interesting to see what happens going forward. Well, Ed, thanks so much for joining us. It was really educational, both for people that are in the industry who might have learned something more from your presentation and also for people who are less uh, knowledgeable about the venture capital world. I think your presentation was fantastic. And again, I think we could do another hour without uh, blinking, but uh, we'll have to have you back on and definitely have you back at one of our future in-person SALT conferences. And maybe we'll use Crowdcast to make it a, a hybrid event. Uh, congratulations you. on all your success with some of those investments that you mentioned. Thanks, John. And audience, thanks for tuning in. Again, if you have questions, just email me, ed at hack-vc.com. Take care.